Professor. Thank you, Marin, for those kind words. And thank you to the organizers, Jane and Nick and Marin and the Ibn Arabi Society. It's such a pleasure to be here. It is uh, sort of a, a refuge on its own to be amongst everyone and to be in a place where uh, you can feel free and, uh, and at peace. There's a certain amount of repetition in this paper, tried and true pedagogical device of those who are not imaginative enough to think of an alternative. <laughs> Nonetheless, I hope you'll forgive it. Um, and I will, I will read and I'll try to make that as entertaining as I can. Ibn Arabi's legacy and role in the contemporary world is multiple. One is as a transmitter, teacher, and interpreter of the Quran to numberless people who would never have encountered it otherwise. In this vastly incomplete presentation, there will be a brief survey of what Ibn Arabi and the Quran have to say about walaya, friendship, and the wali, awliya, friends. And then a general discussion of the way in which friendship functions and circulates both in Ibn Arabi's body of work and in the cosmos. The starting point for understanding the Quran for Ibn Arabi is, of course, the imitation of the prophet Muhammad, upon whom be God's blessing and peace. Such an imitation of Muhammad is an act of love and quest for intimacy, another word for walaya, or friendship. Such an imitation can and frequently does produce a blurring, or perhaps better, rhyming of identities. The question, who is who, may arise, a question to which frequently the only positive response can be, it is friendship itself that is the important identity. Such rhyming is seen to be indicated in the philosophical notion that a friend is another self, and in the relationship of friendship, each friend acquires the characteristics of the other. Today, we do not have the Prophet Muhammad, but we do have the Quran, and according to Ibn Arabi, one may participate in this friendship through the Quran. Those who did not live during his time, but who want to see Muhammad, let them look at the Quran. There is no difference in looking at it and at God's messenger. It is, it is as though the Quran had clothed itself in a form of flesh named Muhammad. What's that noise? Uh, there is no word for saint in the Quran, and there seems to be no synonym that connotes or denotes saint, which is used by Ibn Arabi. It appears to be an Orientalist encroachment. Here is Afifi. Walaya, what is frequently translated as saintship, according to Ibn al-Arabi, and indeed according to a great majority of Sufis, does not mean holiness or piety, although such characteristics may accidentally be found in a wali. The distinguishing marks of walaya, as Ibn Arabi understands it, is knowledge, gnosis, marifa. 
It is important to try to be precise because walaya is the central value of Ibn Arabi's visionary teaching. It precedes all other divine names and attributes in order of importance and is, in fact, that without which there would be no vision or teaching of any kind. Ibn Arabi's source for this at once most valuable and most abundant resource is the Qur'an. As has been pointed out and emphasized by numerous scholars, several of whom are here, uh, and other serious readers of Ibn Arabi, this word, walaya, is done something of a disservice if we think of it as sainthood. Such, at bottom, is a philological problem. But, before everyone runs to the door, permit me to take an arrow from Ibn Arabi's quiver and point out that the usual understanding of philology, the study of language, grammar, vocabulary, syntax, and morphology, may be inverted and reversed here to be understood as the study of love, using philia and logos in an opposite way. So we have here a study of friendship under the cloak of philology. Many of those who esteem themselves faithful followers of the doctrine and teaching of Ibn Arabi also understand the word walaya to mean love, full stop. In addition, they add that the word also means loyalty, protection, guardianship, and of course friendship. And what is more important means all of these things at once. At the same time, here we are concerned mainly with the meaning friendship and uh, friend. The theme of this conference, A Living Legacy, Ibn Arabi in Today's World, offers an appropriate occasion to consider this philological problem at some length, with special attention to the semantic stream friendship. Let us for the moment pretend that the words saint and sanctity do not exist at all, as, for example, is the case with the Koran. The world today is in need of friendship, not sanctity, at least not in the way this word sounds in English and other European languages. When we think of today's world and Ibn Arabi's living legacy, we think in the grammatical mood of the optative. In other words, we hope that there is more of his legacy than we see or experience, because we consider Ibn Arabi to hold a set of keys to not only eschatological happiness, for lack of a better term, but also keys to happiness and contentment in this troubled world we inhabit now. His various teachings for this second type of happiness rely upon what Ibn Taymiyyah uh, would later refer to as the ecstasy of obedience, and what Ibn Arabi characterizes as spiritual knowledge generated through obedience. The regime frequently strikes us as harsh, demanding, and unrelenting, especially as outsiders looking into Islam. But we eventually realize that if everyone followed this teaching, then we could all relax to a certain degree because to be diligently patient, for example, with those who are also diligently patient, is not nearly as onerous as it would be and sometimes is otherwise. So in this regard, Ibn Arabi's living legacy is very much alive and vibrant inasmuch as there is still a great yawning need for human beings to grow up and attempt to embody and perform these so-called divine attributes, which are in reality theoretically human attributes, such as mercy, forgiveness, patience, faithfulness, truth, and so on.
that were so dear to the heart and vision of him in whose memory and honor this conference has been convened. Again, the world today suffers from numerous economic, social, spiritual, ecological dislocations and imbalances. Western post-enlightenment discussions of friendship, apart from being very rare, tend to remain in the key of the secular, a nearly useless word which will not be mentioned again. When we think of today's world, even the least sensitive is depressed, not because of the world word world, which means the time of man or the time of humanity, but because of that other adverb, today. The world now is horrifying and heartbreaking on so many levels, and not least horrifying is the all-important level designated in high school literature classes as man's inhumanity to man. The capacity for taking advantage of the weakness of their fellow human beings so that the strong and powerful may benefit is breathtaking. And it appears to become more breathtaking with every passing day. In such moral chaos and ethical aridity, the idea of sanctity and sainthood is frequently greeted with derision and mockery. Indeed, all of us, it seems, have had quite enough sanctity. Thank you very much. Its models and its project appear not to have come close to assuaging the problem of happiness, justice, fairness here in the sublunar realm, however much they may have succeeded in the eschatological instance. So, the purpose here is to think of Walaya as friendship, to note its origin in the Quran, a brief history of its technical usage, and to find, with the help of Ibn Arabi's living, living legacy, his writings and his thought, its inexhaustible wellspring, which according to this legacy is perpetually and endlessly renewing itself through the spiritual and contralogical calculus of the more one takes, the more there is. The most important study of Walaya in Ibn Arabi is, of course, the incomparable book by Michel Shodkovitz. As he says there, it may well be that Ibn Arabi actually spoke of nothing other than friendship, Walaya. This is what he says. It would not be untrue to say that in one sense, Ibn Arabi, from the first to the last line of his work, never spoke of anything other than friendship. Shodkovitz is translated as sainthood of its ways and its goals, and that it this is the ocean without shore which is used throughout the literature, and it will never be charted in its entirety. As is typically the case with Ibn Arabi's ideas, the source is the Quran. Based on the Arabic triliteral root, W-L-Y, which bears the general semantic charge of intimacy, closeness, friendship, and protection, it, uh, <coughs> a frequent form is wali, which occurs 86 times throughout the Quran, as the usual meaning of friend and or guardian, heir, and so on. Never as saint. This is the point. We find uh, there are several words also, other words in the Quran for friend, uh, Siddiq and Khalil and Hamim and so on. And probably in the Quran there are a thousand locations in which some form of friendship is featured and 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 uh, 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 spoken about. 
as being a, a theme of, of what, uh, what is imperative in the word of God. As far as the words in the Quran for holiness and sanctity are concerned, we have very few instances, and they're largely based on the root kaf, da, uh, q, d, and s. Uh, so, there are um, words, of course, for monks and for uh, priests and rabbis and religious masters in the Quran, but uh, the, uh, the semantic uh, dimension of sanctity and sainthood is frequently overshadowed because these men and women are shown by the Quran in a negative light frequently to have used their spiritual credential for selfish ends or to have uh, somehow or another misunderstood the previous revelations. So sanctity again recedes into the bushes. It's not really uh, a topic that the Quran seems to be that concerned with. To return to the word wali and walaya, friend and friendship, its primary meaning is as protector and close companion, intimate friend. In the Quran, there are 13 different forms, eight different uh, uh, of uh, eight different roots that also indicate friendship. As I said, there are probably a thousand passages in the Quran that speak of uh, friendship as being uh, uh, an obligation on human beings. Of course, the Quranic idea of friendship is also distinctive, and I don't. We don't have time to to go into it's distinctive, but it's not different and it's not foreign, shall we say? It uh, it is it is. Uh, very well represented by our notion of the word friend, which as a Germanic root is based on the idea of love, the ancient root free, and, and, the, and the agent end, free end. And uh, this is what it means, love, intimacy, protection, and so on. Walaya denotes and connotes a relationship, a covenant between two or more parties. As protecting friend, God, who is the primary wali in the Quran, uh, uh, is, is the one from whom all friendship emanates, to use a word in a non-technical sense. Numerous verses testify to God as friend to humanity, to believers, to prophets, and so on. Early Ismaili texts refer to all human beings as God's friend, for example. But there are several passages in the Quran which speak about God as the primary friend. God, on the other hand, is not called a saint or as the a, as a, uh, emblem of sanctity. Uh, just as there are dozens of Quranic contexts in which wali and walaya are mentioned, whether speaking of God as protecting friend or prophets as friends or the believers as friends among themselves, there are also numerous passages in which the root is used to designate those people who are on the other side. The enemies of God and the prophet also participate in their own particular brand of walaya and protection and intimacy. So it is a general idea for closeness and uh, protection and mutuality. In some, friendship is a distinctive theme of the Quran and is in, as is the case in of other distinctive themes in the Quran, this one becomes distinctively Quranic. Friend and friendship as taught in the Quran, the main source of Ibn Arabi's technical terminology, acquires characteristic features 
which do not include values or aspects that correspond to what is intended by the use of the English word saint, saintship, or sanctity. While the Quran is full of references to friends and friendship, it is not possible to find in it a cognate word for saint. Walaya in Ibn Arabi. I'll begin with this brief quotation from Abu Yazid. A friend should know as much about you as God and keep just as quiet. <laughs> Ibn Arabi calls the friend of God a knower, Arif, a, a realizer, Mahafik, a blamed one, Malami, an heir, Warith, a Sufi, a servant, slave, Abd, and man, Rajul. It is mistaken here to assign a gender meaning to Rajul. I don't have to tell you, we just heard all about it. Rajul means valiant, steadfast, and accomplished, and may be applied to both women and men, as, for example, the famous instance of Attar referring to Rabia as a real man in the path of God. Uh, so the, the idea is that Walaya is open, is not a gendered thing, even though Walaya is grammatically a feminine noun, Walai is not something that is, uh, applies only to men or to women. It is transgender, shall we say. The Quran is the main source of Ibn Arabi's ideas on gender, uh, but certainly not the only one. And one that's equally definitive, of course, is from the famous book of Hakim Termizi, who died in the early 10th century, his Kitab Khatm al-Awliya. It is in response to the famous set of unanswered questions composed by this early master that Ibn Arabi's ideas acquire their distinctive form. The mark of friendship for Ibn Arabi's knowledge uh, is symbolized by an actual physical deformity in Ibn Arabi's body. Uh, there is a, uh, in Ibn Arabi had a, a an indentation, a concave hollow between his shoulder blades, which is uh, attested in his biography and, and, uh, and so on, which corresponds perfectly to the seal of prophecy that was borne by the, the prophet Muhammad, which was a kind of a protuberance or convexity. The both, if they were to stand back to back, the vision is that they would fit together like one being. This is this is a real aspect of Ibn Arabi's life and uh, and and the prophet's life. The seal of prophecy in Ibn in the in the prophet is the protuberance, and the seal of Walaya is the concavity in Ibn Arabi. The 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 seal, as Shadkowitz points out in Ibn Arabi, points out the Batin aspect of revelation, Walaya, and the seal in the instance of the prophet symbolizes the uh, seal of Nabuwa, of prophethood. However, looked at from sort of the meta level, this is a, actually a symbol of symbolism itself. It is made more acute by, by this physical deformity, but the point is it's a perfect occurrence of the role and function of the idea of symbol, which is a broken object the two halves of which bear witness for those holding them of old bonds between themselves or their families, 
but it also signifies a sign, a contract, a signification that is undecipherable without its counterpart of the other, its complement and support. This word symbol comes from the Greek cultural practice of using two a broken discs that you would give to one party and the other party would hold it and they would fit together per perfectly and thus establishing credential and identity. A bit like Professor Morris's broken hearts, you might wish to think. Uh, the fitting together of a symbol is shared by God and creatures. The world was not created in vain. It is not an illusion. It is a theater of theophanies, of divine self-manifestation. It displays the hidden treasure to which God compares himself in a Hadith Hudsi. It is the place where one acquires that other half of the knowledge of God, which is the essence of sainthood. The marks of Walaya, knowledge, and the physical seals on the persons of both Ibn Arabi and the Prophet Muhammad have resonance with another set of symbols and metaphors in Ibn Arabi's vision of friendship. And this section is called The Alphabet of Prophets, Islamic Cosmopolitanism, and Universality. We sent not a messenger except to teach in the language of his own people in order to make things clear to them. Quran, Surah 14, verse 4. The Fusus al-Hikam is Ibn Arabi's last major writing, and we may assume his most mature work, one in which we may expect to find his teachings on friendship in their most finished form. The Fusus is essentially an extended essay in prophetology, based firmly on the Quran. The main thrust is encapsulated in the title of the work, where the guiding metaphor is one from the art and craft of jewelry, namely the setting of a gemstone in a ring. A ring, by the way, may also be called a fas, or khatan, for that matter, a coincidence we may assume was not entirely accidental. In this metaphor, it should be remembered the shape of the gem determines the shape of the setting to a greater degree than would be the case today uh, because of the technology and gem cutting and so on. So we have uh, a symbolism which, again, two interlocking elements combine in the manner of the above symbolon of the two bodily seals to provide a key to a truth that far transcends their respective dignities. The gestalt here expresses the truth that each gemstone of divine virtue, such as oneness or patience or divinity or heart or being, is given to a particular community in the person of a particular prophet. The bezel, the setting, or prophetic reality is shaped to fit the particular divine virtue. <laughs> Excuse me. We may also assume that the bezel or prophet is also shaped by his particular historical, linguistic, and cultural circumstance. Another Important aspect of the various chapters of this great book, the Pasusul Hikam, is that each of the titles are constructed in a way that the prophetic reality actually rhymes with the divine virtue it represents. So that we have several chapter headings: the Hikmat Subuhia, the Kalama Nuhia, uh, the Hikmat Rahmania, the Kalama Sulaimania, the Hikmat Ujudia, the Kalama Daudia, and so on. It is, uh, again, a celebration of this rhyming aspect 
of cosmos and interconnectedness. Furthermore, there are 27 of these bezels described and elaborated in Pasus. Such a number may be related to the 27th month of Ramadan, the night of power, and the 27th month of Rajab, the date of the mirage or the mythic ascension of the Prophet Muhammad through the seven heavens to the lote tree beyond which there is no passing, the Sadratul Muntaha. And it may well be that the number 27 should also be seen as a symbol of totality, the totality being the 28 letters of the Arabic alphabet, which is here at 27 on the verge of completion by a single element. It is certainly not uncommon for the number 28 to thus symbolize totality in Islamic philosophy. It happens in every place, in, in diagrams of the universe and so on. We see the 28 levels over and over again. 28 is the symbol of totality. There are 27 prophets in the pursuits. We have here uh, a relationship amongst prophets that is suggested to be alphabetic in nature. That is, they are the elements that, can, that make up the language of divine revelation. No single element is more important than another. Together they provide the components for the new old language of Islam, in which every community that has ever existed has had a prophet, and that each prophet speaks to their community in that community's language. This language is ultimately a language of the spirit. Note how the hollow of, the, of Ibn Arabi may also symbolize the bezel in which a particular wisdom or the particular prophet, that is to say, the protuberance, convexity, uh, convexity of the prophet uh, is. So they, Ibn Arabi and the prophet perhaps represent the 28th element of this uh, connectedness. For each traveler, the journey's end depends on the road he has taken. Some will be spoken to in their own language, others in a language which is different from theirs. Each will be the heir of the prophet who corresponds to the language that has been spoken to him. This is why you will hear the people of the way saying, so-and-so is a Musawi, so-and-so is an Isawi, so-and-so is an Ibrahimi, an Idrisi, and so on. Here, each language represents a particular form of revelation. In another passage, Ibn Arabi sees the lote tree surrounded by a dazzling light, and he himself becomes a being altogether of light. Then he says, God caused to descend on me the verse, say, we believe in God and in that which has been sent down to us and sent down to Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and the tribes and in that which was given to Moses and Jesus and the prophets of their Lord. We make no division between any of them, and to him we surrender. And he made this the key to all knowledge. The Mohammedan community, I'm quoting Shadkovitz now, the Mohammedan community in the person of its saints and at any given moment in its history simultaneously recapitulates the wisdoms contained in the successive prophetic revelations which have taken place since the start of the human cycle and the modes of spiritual realization which correspond to them. The superiority of Islam and Muhammad, frequently emphasized by Ibn Arabi, should not surprise us. It resides in the simple fact that it is only through this Islamic Muhammadan teaching, which is only taught by Islam and Muhammad, 
that we can actually observe such universality, the universality which in time developed into a distinctive and impressive Islamicate cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism, but which until the time of Muhammad had simply not existed, had not been a perspective available to members of the human race. The alphabet of prophets remains very important in Ibn Arabi's teachings about Waliyah. Each prophet is a bearer of Waliyah, of friendship. This does not mean only those comparatively few 27 prophets mentioned in the Quran or the Fasus. The alphabet of prophets in the Fasus is analogous to the alphabet of letters. It is a symbol of totality. But we all know that there are many more sounds than the 28 or 29 that uh, are told about in the Islamic tradition itself that there are many more prophets than 27, 25, or 26. Thus, the Islamic tradition modulated the discrepancy by postulating 124,000 prophets. The alphabet of prophets is construed for us by Ibn Arabi, building on the classical tales of the prophets, which in turn take their inspiration from the prophetology of the Quran itself. There is a structure to this friendship, frequently referred to as a hierarchy. The basic features... Uh, <clears throat> the various offices make up the structure. So after God and the prophets, the structure is familiar to us all. There is the Qutb, there are the two Imams of the Qutb, there are the four Al-Tad, there are the seven Abdal, there are the twelve Nukaba, there are the eight Mujaba, there is a Hawari, there are forty Rajabiyum, and then several of the modalities, as Shadkavit says, Several, uh, uh, chapter 73 of the Futahat lists 84 classes of spiritual human, 35 of which have the constant number of 589. Uh, according to uh, 49 categories named afterwards, represent different types and degrees of friendship. In addition, there are 70,000 angels and the heirs of the 124,000 prophets. Several of these modalities, in fact, can be possessed concurrently, and the attainment of a certain degree implies that he who has attained is eminently in possession of the levels below. If we add to these various parameters those which are furnished by the typology of the prophetic heritage described earlier, we arrive at a combination of inexhaustible richness, a richness of friendship, of wilaya, of intimacy, of protection, of mutuality, of loyalty, of uh, faithfulness. Finally, Ibn Arabi distinguishes between two types of walaya. One, the more general sense, which can be applied to all people, all believers, and another in which it applies to the elite, the, these officers that I have just mentioned. There are numerous reports from the Prophet and numerous statements from Ibn Arabi and other spiritual masters of Islam which strongly indicate that the most noble, the most accomplished, of the friends of God are also unknown, anonymous, and inconspicuous. There is no time now to go through these numerous hadith. We will look at some in the workshop, but for now, one or two will suffice. The servants whom God loves best are the pious and the hidden. When they are away, no one misses them. When they are present, they are ignored. These are the imams of good guidance and the torches of knowledge. The malamiya are the spiritual men, Rijal, who have received the highest degree of sainthood. There is nothing higher than them except the station of prophecy. Their station is the one referred to as the station of proximity. 
No miracles are ascribed to them. They are not admired, because in the eyes of men, they are not distinguished by behavior which is ostensibly virtuous. They are the hidden ones, the pure ones, the ones in this world who are sure and sound and concealed among men. They are the solitary ones. How exactly is this invisible state administered? Ibn Sina told us that love or desire, ishq, is the magnetic power that holds the cosmos together and everything else. Walaya is loving friendship, but it is not ishq. It may also hold the world together through a force other than magnetism and for which I cannot think of a name at the moment, apart from the Arabic word sarayan or sariya, which means current, flux, circulation, emanation, permeation, and penetration. It is an idea frequently found throughout the Futahat, 114 times, and also in the Fasus. Azutsu wrote, for example, that the perfect man is the person who is fully aware of the permeation of the real in all aspects of reality, permeation sarayan, since in him the permeation of the real in all reality reaches its highest degree. Walaya is a natural feature of this interconnectedness of being through divinity, which posits that the divine ipseity, this huia, the identity of God, is diffused through all manifested beings, and within all beings, God has a face which is his own. Thus it would seem that the members of this invisible bureau of friendship are key instruments in the circulation of Walaya throughout the world, throughout the cosmos. They are the veins of the body of the world through which divine friendship circulates. Such circulation is symbolized in the circumambulation, for example, of the Kaaba, and explains how the pole, the Qutb, is connected to everything in the world. The pole is both the center of the circle of the universe and its circumference. He is the mirror of God and the pivot of the world. He is bound by subtle links to the hearts of all created things and brings good and evil. Here, we have a characteristic example of reversal or paradox in which what is eternal and stable is really mutability, flux, and movement. Heraclitus would be pleased. He would also be pleased because through such permeation and constant flow, all of the various oppositions are resolved, dissolved, and even reversed. In short, the fearful symmetry of our lives is shown to be ephemeral, while the substance of our lives, Walaya, is shown to be timeless, as Ibn Arabi says about one of the stations of the path. If you do not stop at that point, you will come to know the rules of taking and giving, of contraction and expansion, and you will learn how to preserve the heart from consuming itself to death. You will also see that all paths go in a circle, and not one is straight. So the straight path is circular. It is the path of Sarayan. To close the section, I will quote from a 14th century follower of Ibn Arabi, speaking on a related topic. He happened to be from the Shi'i version of Islam, but he was a, a devout uh, reader of Ibn Arabi. The perfect man is God's word, and God's light, and God's spirit, and God's veil. This reality flows through the cosmos, Sarayan, just as the point of the pen flows through 
<clears throat> permeates all the letters of the alphabet, or the way in which the idea of one flows through and permeates all numbers, or the way in which the letter Aleph flows through all the words and the way the most holy name, I'm apparently done, the most holy name circulates and permeates all the names. Thus, friendship is a lot like water. And like water, it is an ecological concern. It is generally transparent and unobtrusive, especially as an object of study. But water becomes interesting when it becomes scarce. And in recent years, it, because of the growing awareness of the transparent, however transparent it may be, that in fact, it is the most valuable resource on the planet. That without which there is nothing. Like Walaya, which sounds a little like water, even in the pronunciations. It is like those awliya in the Hadith, forgettable, unremarkable, nondescript, or uninteresting members of a group whom Muhammad's words assure us are the true friends of God. In the Quran, recall that all things are made from water. The Shadkowitz employs a metaphor that is more than a metaphor when he says of the special charisma that is the legacy of Ibn Arabi in our world today. Hence, the Kirka Akbariya, whose course, like that of an underground river, may suddenly surface for a while in the light of day and leave the imprint of Ibn Arabi on one of the branches of an existing tariqah. I will skip to my last page. Thus, we have in all its hierarchical and architectonic glory an invulnerable institution of love, guardianship, protection, and friendship in constant motion. One cannot resist speculating whether this invulnerability is intimately dependent upon invisibility. Whatever the case may be, it is clear that we have a distinctive and benevolent version of what in recent years has come to be called a deep state. Darin Devlet. I trust that Ibn Arabi will forgive the mention of this sinister and cynical feature of modern political culture in the service of the important insight that just because an institution is cloaked and invisible does not mean that it is inconsequential, feckless, or of no purpose, and that a deep state of the type we are suggesting would seem to be a divinely ordained counterpart and antidote. Should it not occupy the energies, thoughts, prayers, and hearts of all those thoughtful, concerned, and perhaps even visible souls who dwell on earth in these difficult and barbaric times? For the vision of such a deep and indestructible refuge of divine mercy and love, we are in the eternal debt of Sheikh al-Akbar, who through his own spiritual struggle and accomplishment has bequeathed to us a refuge, a Dar al-Amna, through which Walaya flows and illumines and will continue to do so as long as the cosmos exists. The partisans of Walaya are legion, even if we are not sure who they are. But being not sure who they are does not impinge upon the agency or efficacy of Walaya, which, like water, cannot bestow and enhance life, being in fact synonymous with it. Thus it may happen that we chance upon an, such a noble soul from time to time, one who immediately causes us to think of the luminous reality from which we all acquire being and to be grateful for it. Permit me to close with this brief passage from Muhammad Assad's classic Road to Mecca. It's called The Life Awakening.
the life, the miracle of life awakening, awakening in a plant that has been watered by chance. We had stopped for our noon prayer. As I washed from a water skin, a few drops spilled over a dried up tuft of grass at my feet. A miserable little plant, yellow and withered and lifeless under the harsh rays of the sun. But as the water trickled over it, a shiver went through the shriveled blades, and I saw how they slowly, tremblingly unfolded. A few more drops, and the little blades moved and curled and then straightened themselves slowly, hesitantly, trembling. I held my breath as I poured more water. It moved more quickly, more violently, as if some hidden force were pushing it out of its dream of death. Its blades contracted and expanded like the arms of a starfish, seemingly overwhelmed by a shy, irrepressible delirium. And thus life re-entered victoriously what a moment ago had been as dead. Entered it visibly, passionately, overpowering, and beyond understanding in its majesty. Thank you.